We resume our series on Sermon of the Mount this week. So with that, our reading this morning is from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 5, verses 1 through 12. Now when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him, and he began to teach them. He said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecute the prophets who were before you. The word of the Lord. The word notorious has really become a part of our cultural dictionary, hasn't it? So we just had the notorious RBG and before her was the notorious BIG. I've been thinking about this a lot recently. What were a Supreme Court justice and an East Coast rapper doing that made people call them notorious? The word notorious means famous, but in an infamous way. It means famous for transgressing cultural norms, famous for going against the grain, for pushing against the status quo. Did you know that before the notorious RBG and before the notorious BIG, that thousands of years ago, in the ancient Roman Empire, there was the notorious PJC, the people of Jesus Christ. The early church was doing things that challenged and deeply offended the status quo, so much so that they were reviled, they were condemned, and many of them were killed, and yet they ended up changing the whole world. Why was the early church so notorious? I mean, what were they so notorious for? We're in a series on the Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount is the longest and most famous teaching of Jesus in the Bible. It's all about what it means to follow him. But Jesus is basically saying, here's what the good life looks like. Here's what real living looks like. Here's what real flourishing human community looks like. But before he gives us the details, Jesus begins by giving us a picture it's this passage that we just read and it's called the Beatitudes. The Beatitudes are like a snapshot or a portrait of the truly good life. If you wanna know why the early church was so notorious, the Beatitudes show us. In fact, we see it especially in the second four Beatitudes. We just finished going through the first four Beatitudes. The first four Beatitudes are all about our deep, desperate need of God and how God enters into our lives and begins healing us and transforming us. But once that happens, what does our lives look like as a result? The second four Beatitudes show us. 
The second four Beatitudes show us why the early church was so notorious. They were notorious for practicing mercy. They were notorious for worshiping Jesus alone. They were notorious for being peacemakers. And as a result, they were notorious for being persecuted, hunted, and killed. Now, here's the question. Who would volunteer for something like that? You know, many people today are searching for a spiritual way of life, but we tend to think of that in terms of finding something that works for you and that helps you to express your own authentic um, identity. And I'll be honest with you, what Jesus is offering us in the Sermon on the Mount doesn't really fit into that. But the reason is because what Jesus is offering us here is far, far bigger than that. And one of the main characteristics of the life that Jesus is offering us is in verse seven. He says, blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. What does this mean? Well, let's find out this morning by seeing three things about mercy. We're gonna see the practice of mercy, the challenge of mercy, and the experience of mercy. The practice, the challenge, and the experience of mercy. So let's begin with the practice of mercy. When Jesus talks about mercy, he's actually referring to something that was pretty specific for them back then. In in the world of the first century Jewish people, uh, mercy was more than uh, a feeling that you have, a feeling of compassion or love. Mercy was actually something that you do. So we could say it like this, that, that mercy is really love in action. And mercy was especially directed towards those who were most in need. So, for instance, in Matthew 25, Jesus is describing what this looks like, and he says that mercy is feeding the hungry, it's welcoming the stranger, it's clothing the naked, it's visiting the sick and the prisoner. Um, Mercy is, is actively extending yourself to those who are in deepest need. It's love and action to those who are in deepest need. Or we could think about it like this. In the Latin translation of the Bible, the word merciful is the Latin word misericord. Misericord literally means miserable heart. Now what does that mean? Well, that means that, that when you see someone in misery, that your heart is so open and porous and sensitive and receptive that you actively enter into their misery and that, that their misery becomes your misery. That you actively extend yourself towards others who are in deep misery. It's love and action towards those in deepest need. And when we understand this and put it in the context of the rest of the Beatitudes, it actually makes perfect sense. There is an internal logic to the Beatitudes. Remember, we just went through the first four Beatitudes. The first four Beatitudes are all about our deep, desperate need of God. We could call them Beatitudes of need. But then the second four Beatitudes show us what a transformed life looks like. The Beatitudes of need are all about being poor in spirit, about grieving and being meek and hungry and thirsty. Beatitudes of need. So Jesus says, if that's you, Congratulations, blessed are you. Why? Well, not because being those things is good or virtuous, it's not. Being those things is to be in a miserable condition and that's the point. Jesus is saying, if that's you, then blessed are you because God's heart goes out especially to those who are in a miserable condition. 
So that if God has entered into your life and done that for you, then that makes your heart particularly responsive to others who are in a miserable condition. So in the logic of the Beatitudes, when, when God enters your life, if you know that you belong to the company of the miserable, then when God comes into your life and brings healing and renewal to you through Jesus, that means that you begin to become particularly receptive and open to the miserable condition of others. So that when you see people in misery, like the poor, or the oppressed, or the weak, or the vulnerable, your heart enters into their misery and you actively extend yourself towards them in tangible deeds of mercy. It's love and action to those in deepest need. Now, here's what's so amazing about this. When we talk about caring for the poor, the oppressed, the weak, and the vulnerable, in our culture, we take that for granted. We think, well, of course we should do that because we're modern, morally enlightened, socially progressive people. But... Where does our modern, morally enlightened, socially progressive ethic come from? We're looking at it. It comes from Jesus. It comes from the Bible. The reason our culture puts so much emphasis on caring for the poor, the weak, the oppressed, and the vulnerable is because it is a direct impact of Christianity's legacy in our culture. And I understand that might be a controversial uh, statement for some of you. Especially you might look at the church and, and you um, see Christians failing to live like that or sometimes even living the opposite way of that. It's understandable, but it doesn't change the historical reality. Our modern social ethic comes to us from the Bible and there are a lot of historians who point this out. So for instance, Teresa Morgan is a professor of Greco-Roman history at Oxford University in England. She wrote a book called Popular Morality in the Early Roman Empire. She's an expert in, in what morality looked like in the ancient world. What was the morality of the ancient world? Teresa Morgan calls it um, an ethic of survival. And here's how she describes it. She says, this is a world of vast economic and social inequality and enormous economic insecurity. There were no social safety nets. If you lose your livelihood... If you lose your land, you're on the streets. Sheer survival from day to day dominated the thinking of almost everybody all the time. So in the ancient world, morality meant that you protect your own, you protect your family. Therefore, it was actually praiseworthy to harm your enemy because you're just looking out for you and your own. Remember, there were no social safety nets. There was no welfare system. There was no caring for the poor because to care for the poor would have meant taking food out of your family's mouth in order to give that to someone else. But, Teresa Morgan says, when you look at the early church, historically, you see a community of people on the bottom of society who risked their own lives in order to care for the poor and the oppressed, and not just in the church, but throughout society. Friends, this is where our modern social ethic comes from. This is where Black Lives Matter comes from. This is where Me Too comes from. This is where the pro-life movement comes from. Our modern social ethic is a biblical social ethic, and that actually leads to our next point. We've just seen the practice of mercy, it's love in action towards those in deepest need. But next, we need to see the challenge of mercy. 
And there are actually many ways this challenges us, but because of the tremendous division in our culture right now, and especially because of the election coming up, I want to spend some time thinking about how this challenges us politically. In fact, over the next few weeks, we're going to see how each of the remaining Beatitudes helps us think about different aspects of what it looks like as Christians to engage politically. So if you hear this sermon today and you think, well, why didn't he talk about this or why didn't he talk about that, please keep coming back because we're going to talk about a lot more in the weeks to come. But here's one of the main ways this challenges us this week. There are a lot of pastors who will tell you that a, quote, real Christian must vote for this party or candidate or must vote against that party or candidate. And I'm not gonna do that. And I understand that may disappoint many of you. It might even make some of you angry because you want me to take a strong stand, but I'm not gonna do that, and for many reasons, but one of the most important is this. As a pastor, okay, not as... Eric is a Christian or Eric as a a, a citizen of the United States, but as a pastor, if I were to tell you that you must vote for a certain party or candidate, then I would essentially be telling you that our unity as Christians depends on something other than Jesus Christ, and I'm not gonna do that. Now, some of you might say, but Eric, the Bible is very clear that as followers of Jesus, there are certain things we must care about and that party and that candidate obviously do not care about that. Therefore, we are morally obliged as Christians to vote against that party or that candidate. Now that's true. There are things the Bible says, it's very clear that as Christians we should care about that. So let's look at those things because most of them are actually manifestations of mercy. Remember, mercy is love and action to those who are in deepest need. It means actively extending yourself to the, to the poor, the oppressed, the weak, and the vulnerable. So the very first Christians were notorious for their mercy in the world. Let's look at four ways they were notorious for this. And the first is this. The, the early church was notorious for being a multi-ethnic, multi-class community. They they had different ethnic groups, different social classes, all mixing together in one community. That was actually considered a, a, a very powerful threat to the social order back then because it was a very hierarchical society. And yet here was the church and they had different ethnic groups and different social classes all in one community. They were radically equal to each other. There was a social equality that existed only in the church. It was considered a threat in the ancient world. Secondly, the church was notorious for caring for the poor. Remember what we just learned from Teresa Morgan. There was no social safety net. There was no caring for the poor. And yet the church extended themselves in radical generosity to the poor of society. And not just people who were poor in the church, but all of the poor in society. Third, the early church was notorious for being opposed to infanticide and abortion. Many of you may know that in the Roman Empire, um, uh, infanticide was not just legal, but it was even encouraged in the ancient world. So if you had a newborn baby and you didn't want the baby, you would leave it on a trash heap or throw it in a sewer and the baby would die of exposure. The Christians would go and they would rescue those babies. You may not know, however, that abortion was also practiced in the ancient world. And the the Christians, the early Christians, opposed that as well. So for instance, there are two 
uh, writings, two of the earliest writings outside of the New Testament, uh, Christian writings, um, two of them are, one of them is called the Didache, which means the teaching, and another one is called the Epistle of Barnabas. Both of these were written late first, early second century, so that's very, very early in the history of church. Both of these books describe Christian life in the Christian community. Both of them were very clearly opposed to abortion. They actually said that it's murder because it's a failure um, to obey the command to love your neighbor, which in this case is an unborn human person. Now, I understand that this is a particularly um, controversial, divisive, and emotional topic in our culture. On the one hand, uh, we should all be able to acknowledge that a woman ought to have a right to decide what to do with her own body. But on the other hand, we also recognize that our own personal rights are always constrained by the rights of other human persons. And, you know, I understand that... um, Many people say, well, look, Eric, the idea that a a fetus is a human person, that's a religious belief, and we should never um, impose that belief on other people. We're actually going to talk more about that next week. But here's what's so amazing for us today, uh, and what I want us to see about the ancient church. In, In the Roman world back then, it was actually legal for a husband to force his wife to have an abortion. Men controlled women's bodies. But the early church said, no, if a woman wants to have her baby, she can have her baby. Men do not control women's bodies. They were opposed both to infanticide and to abortion. And that actually leads to the last way the church was notorious in the ancient world. The church was notorious for their countercultural sexual ethic. In other words, back then, um, not only did men control women's bodies, men also could have sex with whoever they wanted, even if they were married. Multiple partners, multiple sexual partners, anybody they wanted, it was okay for men, but women were expected to remain um, either um, chaste if they were single or um, committed only to having sex with their husband if they were married. But the church said, no, men, you cannot just have sex with whoever you want. If you're single, you must remain celibate. And if you're married, you can only have sex with the person that you're married with. Friends, many people have called this the first sexual revolution because this was radically against the the culture, the sexual ethic of the ancient world. Now, here's what I want us to see about these things. If you look at the first two of these, okay, Um, social equality and caring for the poor, Those look like a progressive platform. But if you look at the second two, opposition to abortion and sexual chastity, that sounds like a conservative platform. You you realize as we look at this that there is no political platform today that embraces the fullness and the totality of God's platform of mercy. And as a result, um, our ability to extend mercy to one another is severely compromised and attenuated. So on the one hand, conservatives will accuse progressives of not caring about unborn children. And progressives will accuse conservatives of not caring about racial justice or the poor. But friends, here's how I want to encourage us. Because there is no political platform that embraces the totality of God's platform of mercy. So on the one hand, that you're going to have to study scripture and pray and follow your own conscience on how you vote or even whether you vote, recognizing that you're going to end up compromising some Christian convictions. Whatever you do, it's just unavoidable in our political climate. 
because no one political platform can embrace the totality of God's platform of mercy. But on the other hand, I want to encourage us as a church, as a community of Christ followers here, that we should devote ourselves to embracing the totality of God's platform of mercy, regardless of how you vote. Because God's platform is so much bigger than any political platform. That means that we should never be constrained by the orthodoxy of any one political platform because God's platform, God's kingdom is so much bigger than one political platform can possibly embrace. And that leads to our last point. We've seen the practice of mercy. It's love in action to those deepest in need. We've seen the challenge of mercy, that this challenges all of our political orthodoxies and political allegiances by getting us to embrace the totality of God's platform of mercy. But lastly, we need to see the experience of mercy. Because here's the question, how are we actually gonna live like this? Or let me put the question this way, what prevents us from living like this? You know, in um, the Beatitudes is not the only place that Jesus talks about mercy. He's actually constantly talking about it. One of the most significant places is later on in the Gospel of Matthew. In Matthew chapter nine, Jesus is doing one of the things that he was most notorious for. He's hanging out with notorious sinners. People who were in desperate spiritual need. The religious leaders see Jesus doing that and they're complaining. They're saying, why would he show mercy to sinners? And so Jesus says to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. When Jesus says, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, he's quoting from the Old Testament prophet Hosea. In the book of Hosea, God compares his people to an adulterous bride. They're always betraying him, always cheating on him, always giving their deepest affections to other gods, other lovers, and yet at the same time, they're still going through all their religious motions. They're bringing their sacrifices To bring your sacrifices means they're doing their religious duty. The problem is they think that because of their um, external religious performance that God loves them and accepts them and blesses them even though their hearts are far away from God. So in Hosea chapter six, God is calling his people back into relationship with himself. He says, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. In other words, God is saying, look, I don't just want your external religious performance, I want your hearts. So when Jesus quotes this to the religious leaders in chapter nine of Matthew, here's what's going on. Traditional religious people have a tendency to believe that God loves them and accepts them because of their external religious obedience. If you don't think that you need mercy, um, then of course you're gonna believe that God loves you and accepts you because you've earned his love. They don't think they need mercy As a result, that makes traditional religious people um, both radically proud and radically insecure all at the same time. It also makes them uh, judgmental and condemnatory, um, not just to themselves, but to anyone who doesn't live up to their standards of righteous behavior. They're always beating themselves up, and the only time they stop is when they take the stick that they're using on themselves to beat other people up. Friends, that is exactly what's going on here with the religious leaders in Matthew chapter nine. If you don't think that you need mercy, why would you be merciful towards others? Of course you're gonna be unmerciful to people. 
And by the way, it's pretty easy to see this same dynamic at work in many non-religious people. This is just a human dynamic. Anyone who is deeply invested in projects of moral self-justification through your performance is always going to be radically proud and insecure, is always going to have a tendency to be judgmental and condemnatory towards yourself and unmerciful towards other people. It's because when you do that, you're not living by mercy, you're living by sacrifice. In other words, I've done what it takes. I've paid the price. I've paid the cost. You're living by sacrifice, not by mercy. Friends, that is where this beatitude does its deepest work in our hearts. You know, one of the interesting things about this beatitude is that it's the only beatitude in which God's promise of blessing exactly matches the the characteristic of the person being blessed. So notice how Jesus says it. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. In other words, here's what Jesus is saying. He's saying our capacity to practice mercy is directly proportional to our experience of receiving mercy. Our capacity to practice mercy is directly proportional to our experience of receiving mercy. Now, some of you might say, but Eric, he says we will receive mercy, future tense. That sounds like Jesus is saying that God's mercy to us depends on our being merciful first. Now that's true, but keep in mind that in the Beatitudes, every single one of those promises is a promise of the kingdom of God, which Jesus is constantly saying is available to everyone right now. If you look at the Beatitudes, the first and the last, the bookends, Jesus says, present tense, there's is the kingdom of God And all of the other Beatitudes, the promises are future tense. Here's what this means. Yes, on the one hand, the fullness of God's promises, the fullness of God's kingdom blessings will only be ours completely in the future, one day when Jesus comes to make all things new. But on the other hand, today, at this very moment, all of the promises, all of the blessings of God's kingdom are available to begin transforming your life right now. How? Well, remember what mercy means. Misericord. It means that that when you see others in misery, your heart is made miserable by their mercy so that you willingly, actively enter into their misery to take it upon yourself. Don't you realize that's exactly what Jesus Christ did for us on the cross? Jesus Christ provided the sacrifice so that we could receive the mercy Because on the cross, Jesus saw us. um, He saw us hungry and thirsty, and yet he nourished us with his body. Jesus Christ saw us wandering and lost, and yet on the cross, he became a stranger to God so that we could be welcomed. Jesus Christ saw us um, naked and destitute, but on the cross, he became stripped naked so that we could be clothed in his righteousness. And Jesus Christ saw us sick and imprisoned by our self-destructive pride and insecurity, yet on the cross, Jesus Christ took all of our sickness and all of our um, pride and insecurity and self-destruction upon himself so that we could be healed and set free in him. Friends, on the cross, the one who created the universe, whose heart is constantly overflowing with everlasting love and joy and delight. He saw you in your misery. And he, his heart was made miserable by your, mercy, by your misery, so much so that he died on a cross, taking all of your misery upon himself so that all of his joy could be yours. Do you realize what that does for you? 
The, the more the reality of Christ's death on the cross penetrates your heart, friends, that begins to dissolve the pride because you see that, that you were so lost and needy that you needed someone to, to save you. But on the other hand, that also begins to dissolve the insecurity because you see that you're so loved and treasured that Jesus Christ delighted to save you and give his life for you. Our capacity to practice mercy is directly proportional to our experience of receiving mercy. The more the mercy of Jesus Christ enters into your hearts, the more it flows out of our lives. Dear ones, what if we were notorious for mercy? What would our society look like? What would our world look like if it was flooded with mercy? What would social media look like? And, and I understand, you know, we're just one little church in one little corner of the world, but if that's the case, what would your corner of the world look like if it was flooded with mercy? What would your life look like, your home, your family, your workplace, your neighborhood, your community, if it was flooded with mercy? Go and learn what this means. Jesus Christ provided the sacrifice so you could receive the mercy. Let's pray. Lord, we praise you this morning give you all thanks for um, making the sacrifice, Lord. We could never live up to the standards, Father. Our hearts are so twisted in pride and insecurity, so twisted in self-condemnation and condemnation of others, Lord, that mercy is just not natural to us. We're more inclined to snark and sarcasm, to hatred and vindication, self-vindication, to condemnation of others, Lord. That's the natural bent of our heart, and we confess that to you, but we pray even this morning that you would renew us through your mercy, Lord Jesus, that the more we see you entering into our misery, the more your mercy would overflow in our lives and make us able to, um, to extend love and action to those who are deepest in need. For we pray all of these things in Jesus' name, amen.